You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Best I can tell, you've been walking around two broken legs for weeks. When do I go back? You ever again land on those legs of yours, those bones will turn to powder. Plenty other ways to serve your country. You want it to be special forces? Yes, sir. Why do you want to join the CIA? I'd like to help my country make a difference in the world. The average test time is five hours. I'm done, sir. It's been 40 minutes. 38 minutes. What should I do now? Whatever you want. The deputy director of the NSA offered me a new position. Can you tell me anything about it? (laughs) You know I can't. Find the terrorist in the internet haystack. You're making people very happy. Thank you. You ready for a little action? Oh, this looks juicy. How is this all possible? Think of it as a Google search, except instead of searching only what people make public, we're also looking at everything they don't. Emails, chats, SMS, whatever. Yeah, but which people? The whole kingdom, Snow White. The NSA is really tracking every cell phone in the world. Most Americans don't want freedom. They want security. Except people, they don't even know they've made that bargain. Are they watching us? There's something going on inside the government that's really wrong, and I can't ignore it. I just want to get this data to the world. Hey, hey. I feel like I'm made to do this, and if I don't do it, then... I don't know anybody else that can. This is everything I have. They're gonna figure out what I've done. Did you access an unauthorized program? The government knows that we have these documents now. You're looking at a possible death sentence. I can't turn back from this. Watch yourself. We are running out of time. They're going to come for me. They're going to come for all of you, too. Hi, Mr. Stone. Hello. Hey, it's Mike White. How are you doing today? Mike White? How are you? Are you alone? No, I've got uh, Matt Seitz on the phone as well. Hello, Matt. Can you hear me? Hey, Oliver. How are you? Matt makes has a great laugh, a great voice. (laughs) Very upbeat. Very upbeat. Well, I'm talking to you, Oliver. Why wouldn't I be a Pete? Save it for your TV reviews. <laughs> Oliver thinks that I'm wasting my time writing about TV, I think. I fear. No, I said, all I said to you was that I think it's been blown up out of proportion, and I don't like, I don't like the idea of having to watch a show becoming an addicted junkie like you are. <laughs> I like the idea of a movie. You violated the code of a movie, which is that you, you tell the damn story in two, two and a half, you leave it at that. You don't soak it for more money, which is what the networks essentially are doing. They're padding out these shows. I enjoy the shows. I do. They're well done, but my gosh, you don't need to go on for 10 hours to 
is my point is it's better off on in movies. I actually agree with you about that. And, and that's my num- my number one complaint about a lot of the shows that I review is why was this not a movie or a miniseries? Why did yes. this need to go for five years? Yes, exactly. Because of money. And it's why it's a money exploited source. So that's why uh, I uh, I have that feeling of television. It's also sponsor driven for the most part. This is a crazy time for you. I was looking at the the dates next week, and you've got the Oliver Stone Experience coming out on the 13th. You've got the Fathom Live event on the 14th. Your birthday in Snowden coming out on the 15th, and this is one of your milestone years. This must be terrific for you. This must be happening, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. I, I wake up every day. It's the same issues, and I try to make my way through the day. But I'm looking forward to it being 70. It's kind of a nice feeling. I made it. I actually survived this business for some 35-plus years. That's pretty good. Yeah, and it's amazing how the business has changed since you've been in it. Terribly, yeah. But I was also challenged by the latest movie. The Snowden movie was very hard to make. It took two and a half years. It was complex, uh, and it really you know, pushes your brain cells. So I don't feel like I got, I'm retiring right now. I feel like I'm really I'm relevant, and this is a story that matters, you know. When you first heard about the Snowden story, did you immediately just kind of glom onto that? Was that no, something no. that you immediately thought? No, the contrary is true. I actually was, because I had known Glenn Greenwald, he'd reached out to me for some advice on his new book as to uh, who to sell it to, because he had some offers and I gave him some advice, but I had no real desire to get involved, because uh, I know these stories are hot potatoes, they get bought, they get optioned by studios, blah, blah. But, you know, nothing happens or else the story changes. It's often you don't get the right straight story right away. And this one was complicated. So I didn't see a good future for it. I got involved. I got sucked in about a little bit later because the lawyer for Snowden invited me to Moscow to come meet him. And out of curiosity, I went. And over the period from late January 2014 to about May, June, uh, I went back two more times. I felt after that experience that he would cooperate with us and that we could make a realistic movie. So I got sucked in. I got sucked in. But uh, he was wary, too. I have to say, we both were wary. This is not an easy subject. Well, you've definitely gotten a reputation over the years, rightly so, of being able to challenge authority. And that's definitely something I think that you you guys probably see eye to eye on. Is that correct? Yeah. It's not like I'm setting out to uh, challenge authority. It's setting out to tell a story. It's a dramatist role. That's what I do. And the story sometimes challenges people in what they believe. But that's the whole, you know, it's we have a, a role to play, uh, dramatists in our society, to make people aware of what sometimes journalists or historians don't make us aware of. You know, you've gone through, I would say, several distinct phases of your career, and I'm sure that Matt can kind of speak to this as well. But I did want to ask you, going all the way back to some of your earliest features, how did some of your work on, like, The Hand or Seizure kind of help shape your your cinematic language as far as how you were telling stories? Well, Matt has an interesting theory about it. The unfrustrated artist, is that right? Well, yeah, I, I saw it as, uh, you know, I felt like The Seizure and The Hand, both of which were low-budget horror films uh, that were extremely psychological in nature. I, I felt like I saw those stories as being about those characters, but I also saw uh, you working through your issues, having come back from Vietnam and, and perhaps still having some PTSD 
and when wanting to express yourself as an artist, but also being kind of afraid of your imagination in a way. Like in both of those movies, it's like the the imagination is attacking the artist almost, and you know, literally, actually, or his family. I guess I'm still afraid. <laughs> you know, it's funny because with a movie coming out, 70th birthday and all, I should be excited. Some part of me is like dreading it too. <laughs> it's like, what's going to happen now? Some blob's going to come out of the East River and attack me. I guess I'm always going to be persecuted to some degree. I heard a rumor that you and Lloyd Kaufman kind of grew up in the same circle. Is that true? That's funny you bring up his name. Yeah, at Trinity School, he was there. I was his classmate for through the eighth grade. And uh, he went into the film business, yes. Did you two ever work together after you were no, both I, in the film business? I was, I was a PA associate producer on one of his porno films, soft porno. And I, you know, I worked there for a while, got some experience, but that was about it. I, I would say that after Vietnam, after boarding school, and but you know, my life changed after the eighth grade and went in different directions. Yeah, it's interesting though that you both end up in film, and you both end up in low budget film at first, and then you branched out in such a dramatic way. Well, everybody ended up in low budget films at first. You don't get the, you don't get a ticket in unless. You're doing commercials or, or low-budget films, and horror films was the best way, it seemed, at that time. I don't think I had a ability to pass. I don't think I was a good horror filmmaker. I, I think I was too empathetic with the character. I think you have to need have a cold kind of, I guess, the Palmer Hitchcock kind of uh, slice, slice the knife of the eyeball, you know? You were making your bones even more than a director. You were such a terrific writer and still are, but just all of the screenplays that you contributed to and, and you know, either wrote fully or co-wrote, yeah. just some amazing work. I was curious, how did your version of Avita compare against the version that finally came out all those years later? Oh, that was very depressing. I really worked hard on Avita. Believe me, I wanted to make it with Meryl Streep, and I wanted to make it uh, very hard. I tried. She almost, she really wanted to do it, but timing was off. And then I tried with Michelle Pfeiffer, who could also sing. Really came close, really close, but it failed. Uh, my, my, Parker, uh, and I don't, were never friends. And, uh, you know, what he did, uh, he had no business making that movie. In my opinion, he's, he should have stuck to Lindy's around, which he was working on. Like, he did make that. It was made later. So he's, I think Evita was, a disaster from the beginning, the way he staged it, the movement, lack of movement, and the choice of the lead actors. I would love to still see a Oliver Stone musical. Oh, I've <laughs> done it. Just can't do that now. I had some great ideas for dance on it, and I'm just anyway. I went all. Well, I went. The, I went the distance with Mr. Weber and Mr. Rice. They, too bad. I was going to tell you the the, the uh, eight million ways to die, which I know was not a not a good experience for you. I had the opportunity while going through your archives to read your your final draft of that, which was set in New York and which was a much bleaker, tougher, more kind of almost documentary feeling movie. Um, have you given any thought to trying to get that made as a period piece, either as a film or maybe uh, as, a, as a cable miniseries or something, or are you just oh over God. it? Well, oh God, I'm over it. You know, I loved that setting, and it was certainly. It felt like the 80s, early 80s, the New York that I knew, the concrete summer, the streets. I loved that idea. and It's a great script, actually. It reads well. But uh, it has no resemblance to the movie. Yeah, I can't go back. Uh, Matt, you want me to make more TV? I'm like crazy. You just want me to make money. <laughs> I, I, I was struck by, in the, in the process of interviewing you, how many times you... you 
talked about this, like either head on or just sort of in the course of telling story, you accumulate uh, clout, you have a hit, you get, you gain some power in the business, and you turn around and you 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 spend that on a labor of love. And the best example of that was your next, your first film after JFK was Heaven and Earth, which was a, thir- a thirty-five million dollar film starring an unknown Vietnamese American woman. That's correct. <laughs> you know, and you do that a lot. You do that. You keep doing that. <laughs> Well, it was because uh, I did feel strongly. It was a great book, and I felt I believed in the story because she went through so much, so many sides, and she ended up in the U.S. with this weird life with three different men. Two of them died, one by suicide. Uh, It's not... We had to condense it, but the movie is very profound to me still, and I watch it, and I'm very moved by it. I cry sometimes. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones is also great in the movie as the husband she marries, a super veteran, and you have to give credit to to not only uh, the author, but Ipti Lee is a, is a wonderful little four foot eleven actress. She did a great job. I'm sure that you've been asked this a ton, but I'm going to ask it again anyway. One of the most impressive things, and we're talking about the the kind of the cinematic language that you were building over the years, but you kind of broke the mold when it came to JFK for me, and just the use of the multi formats. How did you come to decide to do that? Well, we did it more or less. As you say, unconsciously, in the sense that we were, we were. I mean, first of all, we've been using wilder and wilder techniques from Born the Fourth of July on. We were working with an anamorphic camera, and then when we got to the Doors, which is a very important in-between film, it's not often talked about. But the Doors is pretty wild uh, visually, uh, and uh, we took great risks with the anamorphic form and did things unconventionally. When we hit uh, JFK, because it was such a fractured story, where nobody who's telling the truth. You hear so many different sides of the equation, like a bit like Rashomon, which is a far simpler film, but uh, we, want, we decided to fracture it as much as we could. There's the official version of the event we all, uh, we all read and believed for a while, the Warren Commission, and then, of course, there's the unofficial version, which is quite different. I was struck by uh, I was struck by how many times while talking to you about your films I would advance some kind of complicated aesthetic theory for why you did things and your response would be no it was a practical thing. <laughs> Often that's the case when they isn't it I mean it is a response no the, the script it is fractured if you look at the script and you saw the original you saw how crazy it yeah. was and even then I I uh, I took out a lot of the more complex things not to offend the studio too much in other words they let me make it. But I didn't want to go too far. But then when I shot the film, I put it back in. I may not have written them on paper, but I put them back in. So the editing style evolved from that. And then it became more complex, too, because editing itself it becomes uh, another form of rewriting. For example, uh, the, the famous uh, scene uh, with uh, Donald Sutherland and JFK, it was originally two scenes, one at the beginning, one in the middle. And because of the editing pressure, we decided to put it all in the middle. That took quite a bit of rejiggling. I would never have guessed that that was two different scenes, just because it flows together so well. Yeah, if you look closely, the clothing is slightly different. (laughs) You know, it's been 25 years since that movie, which is kind of hard to believe. You seem like the go-to guy now for any kind of discussion about JFK. Has more evidence come to the fore since then? Oh, you're asking a very dreadnought question. It goes on and on. I mean, because of the film, they've passed an assassination record review board, and they passed an act and they opened up a lot of records, not all by any means, but a lot. And those records led to the uh, to the board issuing a set of conclusions that were pretty interesting. They were never followed up on. There's a lot of other evidence that came out 
uh, and researchers used, among them finding out about the 1960 Northwoods uh, plan to destroy Cuba and so forth, that people have used in their research, James Bamford among them. Now, there's a lot of research, and I would urge you to read James D. Eugenio's book, Reclaiming Parkland. That's the best single compendium of facts that I know on the, on the assassination. I've actually read that book because Oliver insisted that I read it, yeah. and I can actually vouch for I can vouch for it. It's actually a really interesting book and, and really well well done. And that was resistance to all my theories because he didn't know the original evidence, which nobody really knows. They, they're still going off this basic uh, three shots Oswald, and they're you know the, the interesting about Jim D. Eugenio does is that he says there's no evidence from that day that exists that's credible still, and he goes into why. I really felt like uh, talking to you about JFK in particular. I felt myself going down the rabbit hole to use that to be use that Jim Garrison phrase, you know. Like I and and I found myself being swung around. Like I was sort of a conspiracy agnostic for a long time, but I think I think that uh, I think that your movie did a lot to kind of push me in the direction of thinking that there's not all to the Warren Commission is not all there is to it. <laughs> Well, I think at the end of the day, and please forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but it feels like one of the most successful things about JFK is that it has led to a lot of questions and that people don't just take things at face value anymore. Hopefully with Snowden, too. We shouldn't take anything at face value, including this existence of this conversation. <laughs> it's, it's not only mass surveillance, but it's also this horrifying new drug called cyber warfare. That's what he brings. That's what he brought out. We were talking about editing, and I know that there are at least four versions of Alexander out there. That's right. What is the one that people should start with, or maybe start and end with? I made Matsy all four, but certainly the last one, the ultimate cut in 2014, is the best existing version. Uh, I, but I can vouch for the 2007 version, which was done at three years later. I think the last cut is the best. And there are fairly minor differences, I think, between the third and the fourth cuts. But it's funny, Oliver, because I think as you told the story, like you, you wanted to do one more pass on it because you saw it at a, at a film festival and you realized there were some things in there that you still weren't happy with, right? The third version, yes. There was a huge change from the first two to the third one because I put an intermission in and I put more time back in. And so it becomes a, a three-hour, 30-minute movie, roughly, uh, which allows you to grow the characters to understand the motives. And also, I changed the structure completely of the movie. It begins with that big battle at Gagamela, and then and then it gradually moves backwards through his history, and then it kind of moves. It's, it's almost like this idea. I think you described it, all, Oliver, as like on parallel tracks, like the narrative is moving on parallel tracks psychologically. Inner yeah, the inner, inner world, world and the outer world. world, right, yeah. The inner world of Alexander's relationship as a child with his parents, the outer world being the conquest of that world the physical conquest, moving outward, and then, of course, coming back from India to uh, Babylon. Great parallel story, as well as it's done in, with an intermission, which is what we need back in movies. We need an intermission to breathe, take it all in, and then just come back, and then plunge back in. I wish it had been released in two parts. When your name is on the poster for Snowden, that's going to sell some tickets, as will your star, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I'm curious how it was working with JGL on, on Snowden. We didn't always see eye to eye, but and there was push and pull, as there should be in any creative relationship. But he got the character, and he wanted to embody him, and he was his calling. I knew that he was the right choice. He was my first choice, and I didn't ask anybody else. I just sensed, and I didn't know him at all. And I'd only seen a few of his movies. 
by the way, I think Don John, which he directed, is also brilliant. Um, but he has a strange kind of power, a stoicism to him, and it comes through in this film. I think we balanced it out with Shailene Woodley as his girlfriend, Lindsay Mills, because I, let's say he's the extra introvert and she's the extrovert, and, and they blend together into a couple that I think is true to the story. He puts on a voice for the character. What was the, the rationale behind that? Was that just to get closer to the real Edward Snowden? Uh, it's certainly an actor who has his methods. Uh, for example, uh, Anthony Hopkins at times used accent, but he often went to the physical gesture, the things that Nixon used to do. In Joe's case, I think he identifies off the voice first, and uh, getting the voice is the most important thing for him. And because he had so many uh, audio tapes of him and YouTubes and so forth, he got pretty close. I know there's some differences still, but, you know, those they're minor. And I think that Joe lived up to what he wanted to do, which was almost, in a sense, it's straight-jacketing yourself, but in a good way. I am very excited to see Nicolas Cage in this because I think you're one of the few directors that really knows how to use him effectively these days. The the work that you did <laughs> with him. and what. I think he's terrific when he's in the right hands, and, and like in World Trade Center. So I'm curious to see what you're going to do with him and with Snowden. I think he did a great job in Trade Center. I really think he's under underestimated. I think he's. I've never. I've only worked with him twice, and I've seen the best of him. You know, I think he got saddled with a lot of debt there, and partly his fault, sure. But uh, there was some issues that he had to work off the debt. Otherwise, he was facing a huge penalties at the, uh, the with the IRS, et cetera. You know, it's not easy, uh, but he's certainly one of our best actors. The older he gets, I think the more he'll be appreciated. If November whatever rolls around and Donald Trump is our president, how do you think that he would deal with somebody like a Snowden or with Edward Snowden himself? Neither candidate has talked about a surveillance issue. Neither have they talked. Neither have talked about war. The wars Americans involved in. Nor have they talked about climate change. Come on. Let's get serious here. This is not a real election. This is a fake election. It's not about anything real to me. Uh, I don't think that Mr. Trump or Ms. Clinton would do anything about it, except uh, I, I think their attitudes are merciless, as, as has been Obama's attitude. Uh, and, uh, you realize he's prosecuted eight whistleblowers under the Espionage Act, which is a rare act, very rarely used for espionage. So he's, Obama's been as tough as they come. Clinton is tougher than Obama. So I don't see where we're going into any climate of reform or transparency. Have you thought about doing anything about the, the WikiLeaks matter? Because I, I, from what I understand, you're kind of a supporter of Assange and what he's been doing. I think WikiLeaks has done a huge service to the international community. And uh, there should be more of that real journalism and more discussion of what they do. They've been a pariah under this weird set of charges emanating from England and the United States behind it. I think it's horrifying. That, uh, I, I think it really is. It's a modern count of Monte Cristo. I mean, he's being buried in a prison <laughs> unjustly. As has Chelsea Manning, as has Edward Snow. When Matt was on the show and we did Salvador, one of the things that came up in our discussion was the way that the media has treated you over the years, and especially after JFK, that you were kind of painted in this brush of being a kook. Do you think that all these years later that you still have to fight through that, or have you kind of become more of an authority? I mean, you are old guard now. <laughs> well, I think 
Matthew, I don't know. You know, you'd have to, I don't have any idea how to answer that question. I would simply say I have to be who I am, which is I'm, I'm going to fight the bastards that I think are bastards in the rest of my life. I think I'm, that's my style. Uh, I brought, I, I did a tremendous amount of, I've, I've educated myself far more uh, through each film, but I mean, through certainly Untold History of the United States, the documentary, the 12-hour documentary, I learned a lot about our history and our authentic history. I can see where I'm living in a bubble. We live in a bubble and all our actions and results, uh, many of them are, are bad for the world and artificial. So uh, I'm in for another fight now, so you know that. People have tried to make me into all kinds of strange things, but I never, they never get down with me on a specific detail level. Well, one of the things I think that works really well is that you're not afraid to parody yourself. You know, your appearance in Dave, I think, really took the piss out of a lot of people. Thank you. I appreciate it. Right, Matt, what do I say? Come on, help me on that last question. Oh, I think you, well, I, what I like about that cameo in Dave is you're the only guy who knows the truth. I'm talking about the larger question. <laughs> oh, well, that, I, I think, you know, um, reading back over our, our conversation and looking at the book as a whole, I'm struck by the fact that... Um, I've never seen in my lifetime, I've never seen the media all on the same page trying to bring down a film and a filmmaker as was the case with JFK. It was, it was, it really like, and I, my, my quote, and I've said this about you many times, like after going through that, if Oliver Stone wasn't a little bit paranoid, he'd have to be crazy. <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, it was really felt concentrated and, um, it continued with other films like, uh, uh, you know, Natural Born Killers, Nixon, and weirdly, World Trade Center, because everybody, when it was announced, it was assumed that it was going to be some kind of conspiratorial narrative about, about 9-11. And then you came out with the survival story, which actually, uh, to, to, I was surprised to learn that's one of your top grossing films internationally. And their critical response was, hey, why isn't there any conspiracy stuff in this? And it's like, well, what do you, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want the, do you want it? Do you want a conspiratorial, uh, thriller or do you want a, a survival story like what? I don't understand it. And, and I, and I really felt, I really felt that as a through line and I get what you're saying. And I do think that it's unfortunate that that's the only side that people see. And that's a, that was a big part of wanting to do this book because I see other aspects to what you do, including the fact that you're a religious filmmaker, you're a crime filmmaker. We've got an essay in the book about, uh, you know, how you make a lot of great crime films and also your political films are also crime films, which is something I don't think has been written about enough. Yeah. Very special of you to say. By the way, what happens now? What happens uh, with Snowden now? I don't know. You know, I think uh, my personal feeling, and maybe I, I don't know if I'm going to be right or wrong, but I think that um, it's a different climate right now. I think that uh, you know, people maybe will be a little more receptive to a film that portrays Edward Snowden sympathetically than they would have been a few years ago. And I also think that the mood of the country is so bleak and so dire and people are so fed up with the status quo that they may be just a little bit more amenable to a filmmaker like Oliver Stone. But then again, as you said, I'm an optimist. <laughs> so I hear you. I hear you. Although there was someone said that there was someone who read the, uh, that New York Times article yesterday, long one, uh, said that she felt that this uh, writer had tremendous hostility towards me, but was keeping it in. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good sign, because if they let it out, you know, things would be worse, right? Well, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Mr. Stone. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Appreciate your giving me the time, and I didn't feel rushed or harried. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, for helping out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. A happy birthday. Have a good one.
Freeway, you're spinning. 